Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to another episode of Of The Devil's Party. My name is Alice. And my name is Rowan. And we are... Of The Party. We are! This is a podcast where we discuss representations of the dark hero and the associated character archetypes and prototypes, and where we try to understand the development and significance of the dark hero, one of the most ubiquitous and influential figures in contemporary culture. Today, we explain to you the meaning of the title of the podcast. (laughs) I got you, Dad. And we bring to you the first episode in a mini-series on the great, wonderful Satan of John Milton's Paradise Lost, initially published in 1667 before it was reproduced as a 12-book poem in 1674. John Milton in Paradise Lost decides that he is going to do things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme, justify the ways of God to men, and to communicate to the fit reader, though few, which is, you know, not at all order at all. In many ways, Satan marks a turning point in the tradition of dark heroes and ushers in the modern tradition of hybridic, sympathetic, morally ambiguous, slightly sexy dark heroes that abound today. So we're going to consider Milton's life in the context of early modern England, the tradition of Satanism, and rebellious epic heroes. The relevant criticism regarding Paradise Lost, because this miniseries is episodic, (laughs) because I can't fit everything I have to say in even this amount of episodes, as it turns out. And we'll explain why in a moment. (laughs) So it is possible to do an an entire podcast just on Paradise Lost, and Roland and I considered that, but we are just going to focus on Satan because I shouldn't rant about Eve and epic similes for four hours. So what was your experience of reading reading Paradise Lost, Rowan? I read it in the, I read it at uni and I read the first couple of books uh-huh. and I didn't understand what was going on. At all? At all. Not even. Yeah. Not even. Can't, like, decipher the clauses from whatever the not The, the other thing are. Milton does is he writes these huge, long sentences that go on forever, like, kind of like episode Fitzgerald. It's, okay, so you read it in Dark... Dark Hero. I really liked it, but like I understood it more from the different articles I read about it rather yep. than from what I read. Do you so. remember what you read about it? Uh, I do remember reading about the epic sim, and I remember um, the it's not the Loch Ness monster, is it? It's something else. <laughs> the Leviathan. The Leviathan. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be funny if it was the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> <laughs> I remember learning about the Leviathan, and I remember learning um, thinking about pandemonium. I really like the mm, word the itself. Yeah. yeah. So I remember that, and I think I also read a little bit in one of the later books mm-hmm. where Adam is talking. That angel. Michael. That one. Raphael. Yeah, one of them. Okay, we'll get to that eventually. A few podcasts from now. <laughs> and I've read it again recently as an adult. As an adult. Yeah. As a but fully formed human. As a fully formed human. But I should note that everything I know about Paradise Lost, I've poached off you. <laughs> Why is that? Well, you... <laughs> tend to be an expert on it. <laughs> Not yet. I have, once, one day, they'll give me the PhD and I could call myself... Well, I'm, I'm assuming that you've read a lot about it, considering <laughs> it's the topic okay. of the PhD. <laughs> so, in the same way that in the last
last episode we looked at um, Vertex, that was the topic of Rowan's major research project for his honours thesis. Um, Paradise Lost has been the subject of my honours and now a large chunk of a large chunk. <laughs> the majority of your life? Of my PhD. No, not the majority yet, but it takes it a... It will be. It, it forms a Another huge part of my life. Yes, I've done a lot of research on Paradise Lost. I've also taught it and lectured on it a couple of times. I went to those lectures. He did come to those lectures. Oh, nice <laughs> sat in the front row and smiled at me when no one else. My experience has been similar and different because it started off pretty much exactly the same and then I just didn't get it. That's reassuring. Yeah, yeah. And I try to tell that to students every year. Like, this is hard. Poetry, like my first slide. <laughs> Poetry is hard. Plan for this. And I actually, I remember when I saw it on the reading list thinking, oh, I know this Milton guy because I'd done William Blake in year 12 and we'd done Milton the poem, but I didn't really have the context. And I had an excellent lit teacher, but it just didn't know who Milton was or the significance or anything. And then I, I read it and I was like, I don't understand it, but with more time I could. And in the summer holidays that year when we were still people who had to go home to our parents in the summer holidays and I was hiding from them I tried to read the rest of it and so you went keep from your parents in right. how <laughs> this book and decided this is where I shall live for the next I have a very months. lovely pastoral home like there's nothing to hide from I was just like ugh these people <laughs> I'd rather hang out with the devil with Satan yeah and I thought it was just really a really interesting concept and obviously I'd done the rest of the unit that it was in so I wanted to understand it more so when it came to people telling me I should do honours and what was I going to do honours on and which units did I find really interesting or want to sort of do further research in I tried to do uh, an essay on Paradise Lost for that unit and I, I didn't do well so I didn't know what the hell I was talking about and I didn't know how to write essays. You I still are. don't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> this is a joke. <laughs> for legal reasons, that's a joke. <laughs> I did really badly on the essay and but when I decided to do honours I knew that sort of what I wanted to write on was Paradise Lost and I sort of really had to figure it out. But it wasn't until I did PhD that I got sort of more formal help. How many copies have you got in, in this room, not counting digital copies? Take a guess. Acres, I've got three there. I've got this one, I've got the one up the top, and I've got the crappy ones. I know there's one in the Norton Anthology. Just for the readers, you don't have camera access into this room. Alice is pointing at, at shelves. the shelf, at the desk, back at the shelf, back at the desk. <laughs> and I, I quite like collecting the um, the older editions. Oh, yeah, they, those ones taste different. They do taste different when you lick them, which is what I do at night. Paradise Lost is a hugely significant poem from the tradition of literature, dark heroes, the way we understand the Bible, the way we understand our own culture, the way we understand language. Milton is hugely influential, uh, but I feel like often people don't know why. And for a long time I thought I was just doing that. I see you see a yellow car once, you see it everywhere. But I'm right. It's so nice to have like done enough reading to say I'm right. I'm right. Something. It's a sort of like reassurance that I, I aspire to one day. And one day I'll get an article published in Milton Studies and that'll be it. I'll be like, right, job done. Life over. That's it. Retired. <laughs> in the bathtub. Sleep time. <laughs> Why are you sleeping in the bathtub? Right. Books everywhere was, else. Like the goal of my thesis is to understand how the precedent set by Milton using Satan in Paradise Lost has influenced the development of the dark hero. And I look specifically at the romantic period and how Milton influenced those writers and those characters. And there is something to then be said about how those writers and characters influence us now. The jump from Milton to the romantics is a big one. <laughs> and no one had really done what Milton was doing before Milton. So, cards on the table, Rowan. Yeah, okay. What kind of dark hero is Satan, do you think? 
Oh, sexy one. I like okay, that's not. weird. <laughs> I did have a conversation with <laughs> once about like which dark heroes you would bone. Oh, yeah. Satan was high up on the list for him and very low down for me. <laughs> to be honest, he's actually a bit too delusional for me. You like your dark heroes? Same. Down to earth. <laughs> ah, yeah. I like him same. Sorry, we're off track. What kind of dark hero is Satan? Can I go with answer A first? There were dark heroes before Satan, which well, we will get to. What kind of dark hero is Satan? That's a big question. That's one we're going to try and answer today. Do you have an opening thesis statement? An opening thesis statement. I say that he's interesting. <laughs> Isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Do you mean like what makes him a dark hero? Yeah. Kind of. He's got a manifesto. You're just going through my thesis now. Yeah, that's see. I told you all the knowledge I know I've poached off you. Right. This is going to be a so problem I'm today. To come up with ideas of my own. <laughs> that's what your homework was. <laughs> I read the books. <laughs> I read no. the sublime. He's sublime. He's a sublime dark hero. He's a very uh, charismatic dark hero. Mm -hmm. He has charisma. Mm -hmm. He's very ambitious. Mm -hmm. He is deluded. He is sort of like a deluded officer. He's the poster character for pride. Poster child. Pride, yeah. He's a bad influence. He's an incredibly bad influence. <laughs> Perhaps the worst influence he's ever been. So I argue that Satan is the first modern dark hero because Paradise Lost is a turning point in so many ways in representations of both heroism and dark heroism. I argue that Satan, therefore, is the first satanic hero. He is the first of his kind and many other heroes that come after we often think of them as being made up of, you know, Promethean qualities, Byronic qualities, a child of nature qualities, but there's no established sort of idea of what the satanic hero is, so no one thinks, oh, it's got satanic qualities. They just go, oh, there's something in here from Milton's sake. But I think the fact that so many characters have these satanic qualities suggests that there is a satanic hero type that can be identified, which is what I've been trying to do. So, I think he's a satanic hero. I think he's incredibly indebted to the Promethean Promethean figure though, which we'll we'll get into a bit later. So what is the book about? Um, the poem is split into 12 books. Satan is most prominent in books 1, 2, 4 and 9, and these are the ones we'll sort of be looking at. I suppose book 6 as well, as that's when the war in heaven happens. The first book opens with the fallen angels lying defeated on a burning lake in hell. Do you want sound effects? Okay. Thank you. Um, Satan awakes and taking stock of their dismal situation reinvigorates the fallen angels with some stirring speeches. No. A catalogue of the, of the demons and their history is given. Satan orders them to build a city by mining the materials of hell. And there are some ideas that, like, mining is linked to Satanism, which, for reasons that you understand, is hilarious. The city is called Pandemonium, um, which literally means of all demons. Has nothing to do with pandas. Nothing to do with pandas. In the beginning of the second book, the angels are inside their city, and Satan is high on his throne, presiding over what could be described as a war council, a parliamentary session, or a pageant. Satan begins by asking the other demons how they should proceed, and they begin to debate, not noticing that Satan has already predetermined the outcome using Machiavellian tactics. Proposals are presented by Moloch, Belial, Mam Mammon and Beelzebub before it is decided that they will achieve their revenge against God by destroying his newest and most precious creation, man. And it is ironic that they do that through a woman. One among them will journey to Earth to fulfil this task and Satan does, doesn't so much as volunteer his tribute as he does rhetorically bully the others into choosing him. Uh, the rest of the book details Satan's ascent through chaos where he meets Sin who recognises Satan as her father somehow and explains that death is their child. After some persuasion they allow him to pass through the gates of hell. 
Satan travels through chaos until he becomes lost and stumbles across the court of chaos where he meets a knight who helps Satan find his way. Really, he just gives him street directions. In book three, God and the sun are exercising their omniscience, watching Satan's voyage through chaos and making sarcastic remarks. As I will be doing on the voyage of this podcast. Hey! <laughs> um, God then explains that someone will have to sacrifice themselves to save mankind and the sun volunteers. What's new? Meanwhile, Satan deceives the angel Uriel at the gate and enters the Garden of Eden. At the top of Mount Nephates he gives his famous soliloquy and at the conclusion of this soliloquy Satan famously commits himself to evil and continues down into Eden to decide how best to destroy humanity. The remainder of the poem explains why Satan decided to mount a rebellion in the first place which is God's unprovoked and unnecessary exaltation of the sun. As Satan succeeds in corrupting humanity by seducing Eve with knowledge and appealing to her pride and the pair are ejected forcefully. <laughs> from Eden after a strict talking to by Michael. Satan himself returns to hell victorious, but at the climax of his victory speech to the rebels, God intervenes, as he was always going to do, and turns Satan and all of his followers into serpents as punishments. Hugely ironic that all he hears when he's giving that final speech suddenly is the hiss of the crowd, and then he's on his belly, and his most powerful tool is taken from him, and he's just rendered completely impotent by God. As are we all. The tradition Milton draws on to develop Paradise Lost, though, is hugely complex. Do you know anything about it? I don't have any thoughts of my own on it, but I do know it has something to do with Prometheus. The tradition Milton draws on when creating Paradise Lost is huge. As we will discuss in a minute, um, Milton is one of the most intelligent geniuses of all time. Holy glot, I'm envious. Spite. <laughs> Satan is cast as, as an epic hero because this is an epic poem, but Milton criticises the way epic poems usually work and the sort of testosterone fueled posturing that is used to characterise the main characters. And so he reveals that as just being ridiculous. So A, he makes Satan the, the epic hero and demonstrates his fall. And then there's an argument that the Messiah ends up being the hero, but he's just not central enough for that to sort of play out. And there's other other signs that Milton is um, having a laugh. The battle in, in he heaven is ridiculous because none of them can actually injure each other. They just grow all their bits back constantly. So it's mostly a farce. And also everyone is aware of providence throughout. Like, it's not like they don't understand that God is all-powerful, although Satan does delude himself. His rebellion is inherently sinful, and eventually he's revealed as completely delusional. And the other thing is, Satan's entire argument becomes corrupted, because despite accusing God of tyranny, which is, you know, what epic heroes do, so I'm off to fix a problem. He himself becomes a tyrannical figure, so Milton sort of represents the epic hero as... Well, he undermines everything an epic hero is by making the Thing Milton forces readers to challenge these epic conventions and, and exactly their convention conventionality. And he's referring to most prominently Aeneas in, in Virgil's Aeneid, um, also Odysseus to some extent. I have a lot to say that won't fit here about the extent to which he draws on Prometheus and which versions of Prometheus. But obviously the idea of rebelling against God through pride and then suffering for all eternity comes from Prometheus. <laughs> but there are some differences, like the reason Prometheus rebelled was because he was benevolent. He wanted to help mankind, again, depending on which version. But the most popular is because he was benevolent, whereas Satan is entirely selfish. It sounds like Prometheus had like good motives, bad execution, yeah. whereas Satan has like bad motives, bad execution. Well, it's complicated because because the bad motives aren't aren't really revealed for a little while. 
because God is represented as a bit of a douchebag and you can, there's there's room there to sympathise with Satan and a lot of his arguments really are quite powerful and make a lot of sense. But then you remember, oh, this is God and Satan. Like, this is a huge problem in the poem. Can't ever fully sympathise with Satan without acknowledging that, oh, well, I'm sympathising with the devil, the baddest bad guy of ever. And that actually, uh, for me and for a lot of readers, makes it very difficult to read and discuss the poem because when it's other characters, so when it's other characters like Thor and Loki, like you can just sort of get behind one or the other. There's no implications of doing so. But if I was to come out and say, no, Satan is better than God. <laughs> <laughs> you have a whole horde of real life people yeah. who don't like well, that idea. Oh, and also Milton didn't try to do that. That's true, That's he was a, writing in yeah. a religious yeah. context. He knew what he was doing, he was complicating things, he was asked, getting people to question. And remember, his, his poem is all about justifying the ways of God to man, and I think to do that meaningfully you have to give us, as readers, a believable bad guy, one that you almost sort of get behind. So he's, he's recalling those sort of classical epic traditions. He's also recalling more recent uh, epic traditions. Um, most prominent in them is Dante's, Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. We love the Divine Comedy. We love the Divine Comedy. Especially the editions of pictures. My oh. recent Christmas was spent reading the Divine Comedy twice. 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 Um, I think I'm going to read Inferno again. And Rowan's birthday present to me was an illustrated. But William Blake's illustrated version of the divine comedy, which I cherish. Dante was one of the biggest poetical influences on Milton. Uh, he appears in Milton's commonplace book. Do you know what a commonplace book is? No way. What oh, is it? A commonplace book, it was kind of not quite a diary, but it would be a little sort of notebook that you would keep where you would write down phrases that stuck out to you. Oh, that's cute. You that's thought were interesting. Diary. Well, it's a really interesting way of analysing readers and the way people read and what they paid attention to and which versions of which text they had and what like what notes they're making around it like their marginalia and everything so what you're saying is um milton was while milton was reading dante he was jotting down little notes about the inferno yeah yeah Mil milton had um huge commonplace books and they were insanely well organized whereas i mean just this uh, last couple of months i've been reading all about coleridge's and they're just a mess <laughs> or even shelley's which have like percy shelley's they've got like you know sketches and pieces written sketches. upside down Did he draw, like, a, like a sun in the corner of the room he put he put a boat in the corner of the page <laughs> Shelley. Whereas Milton was incredibly organised, um, and even recently they found Milton, one of, one of Milton, they think, pretty sure, one of Milton's editions of Shakespeare. And what was really cool about this, I, I went to, a, or I observed on Zoom a talk about it, was Milton was actively editing the poetry and and like sort of experimenting with Shakespeare's poetry in through his marginalia. He wasn't like rewriting Shakespeare, but he was sort of playing with the verse to see how changing certain words or the meter would change the meaning, which just shows that Milton was a very active reader. Like he wasn't just passively mm. sat there. He was engaging. And Dante, as it turns out, was one of the ones he engaged with the most because he appears in Milton's commonplace book more than any other major poet. Fanboy. Their respective representation of Satan could not be more different. Now, have you read Inferno? Do you remember what the devil is represented as? I could do a really good impression. Yeah? So... This so, is an audio medium. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the impression is like... <laughs> but, like, if you picture it, 
what it'll look like is like this really, I don't know if he's buff, okay, let's just say like this really monstrously huge person that is like <laughs> waist down, frozen from the waist down in ice, mm -hmm. and then on the top he's got like his arms and his head and stuff, mm -hmm. and he's got these big wings. Bat wings. Yeah, and they're flapping, yeah. but like doing nothing Yeah, because he's trapped in the ice, and he I can't think, get out. Is he eating people at yes. the same time? Yes, he's got three heads. In sort of a parody of the Holy Trinity. Oh, lucky. Um, <laughs> and also the the winds are beating in a sort of relentlessly freezing wind the whole time. And he is perpetually feasting on the bodies of Cassius, Brutus, and Judas as slaver and tears run down his face. And is so nasty. And is so nasty. So I think that Dante's Lucifer is just a mechanical, grotesque, and impotent figure, and much of the power of his representation of the devil is invoked by his use of symbolism and the sublime. He's not anything beyond that. Dante gives him nothing else, no character. Just so him. so Luc Lucifer doesn't speak in Dante. So there's just nothing there to humanise him whatsoever. Like, Dante sticks with the symbolic, biblical representation of the devil as incomprehensible as yes agreed yeah. <laughs> everyone agreeing you, you agree good <laughs> and i think what's interesting actually about particularly on the journey through hell a lot of the figures you meet they um invoke a kind of pathos so even though they did something wrong and they're sort of condemned but not sort of they are condemned to eternal suffering the way dante represents them is sympathetic like you understand why they're there <laughs> why they did yeah. the thing they did isn't mm -hmm. that half the half the problem for the pilgrim anyway is that he's talking yes. to people and he's empathizing with them and Virgil is like telling no. him how to do anything. No, bad day. These people are in hell. So it's, it's about him learning not to, you know, pity people who have kind of yeah. sown yeah. and reaped what they But still, mm. the poet Dante, yeah, he, he complicates that and he shows the pilgrim Dante sympathizing. But Satan is, it's completely, it's impossible to sympathize. He is so, he's just a symbolic figure. And this is what Milton was working with. So it is interesting that Milton sort of went against that and instead humanised, characterised, animated, developed, like um, Satan is such well-rounded, well-developed, complicated character, both psychologically, morally. Milton is also obviously drawing on Shakespeare, who he loved. And we've sort of talked about classical precedents, we've talked about Dante is a precedent, so medieval, medieval. Obviously, we've also got an early modern precedent in uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's vice characters, but in particular, Richard III and Macbeth. And what stands out to me about Richard III is that he recognises that once he has passed a certain point that he cannot escape himself, like he's become morally corrupted and starts to collapse. Um, and he says he is trapped to rather hate myself, a hateful deed committed by myself. I am a villain. And he further laments that because of his hellishness there is no creature that loves him so again it's self-awareness that you don't get in Dante right and that you don't really get in, in the classical epic heroes now we're starting to get these really psychologically complex characters but they're still human so it's okay <laughs> you can do that and obviously yeah Othello Hamlet Macbeth obviously the big precedent as well is in the tragical history of uh, Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe um, again a modern period contemporary of Shakespeare and the representation of the devil, or not the devil, a devil, in the play is Mephistopheles, who represents the devil's interest. And 
he says, you know, this is hell, nor am I out of it, suggesting that he carries the state of hell with him everywhere psychologically and can never escape it, that it is corrupting him from the inside. And he warns Faustus about this, the stupid man. <laughs> Obviously the Bible. It's, he's also in the Bible. I think, I think it's at least vaguely inspired by the Bible. The Bible. The Bible. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, so Milton is um, obviously also incredibly well-read um, in the Bible. Can I, can I ask one thing about the Bible? Mm -hmm. What sort of representations of the devil are there that Milton could have drawn on? In the Old Testament, as uh, important Milton and Satan scholar, Neil Forsyth talks about Satan, the word Satan means adversary, right? So this is the etymological history of the word. And he argues that it wasn't used to mean like just your enemy. It was used to indicate people who betrayed the cause, the cause from within. So if my neighbours kicked my cat, I wouldn't be calling them my adversary because they're sort of a warring tribe or whatever who have attacked me to try and gain some sort of ground. But if you kicked my cat, mm. I would say you had um, betrayed me. You were the adversary. So it's like a turncoat sort of thing. Yes. You have betrayed the group's values. Betrayal sounds like the important thing. So, but Satan doesn't feature as a character in and of himself in the Old Testament like it is just the serpent in Genesis. We don't get really anything more. It's not until Isaiah that Satan is represented as the morning star, but even then he's not really a character. And in the New Testament he starts to be talked about as more of an entity um, unto himself. He's represented as a, as a tempter and a tester. So he tests Christ in the desert and there's different representations of this and how he does this and what he uses. So obviously Milton, Milton is drawing on on these precedents, but he's also drawing on theology more broadly. Let's talk about Milton before we get much further into the text. Milton. Milton. Milton himself. Man. Milton the man. And again, I've cut this down because I could go on and on and on. If you're looking to read a good a biography on Milton, Barbara Lewolski's The Life of Milton and also Neil Forsyth's biography on Milton are excellent. I think Lewolski is my favourite Milton scholar with Forsyth, very close behind. So Milton was born in 1608. For context, Shakespeare is still alive. Very cool. What a time. They were around. They could have bumped into each other. He's born into a Protestant family in a rich merchant area of London. His father, John Milton Sr., is a gifted musician who becomes a scrivener to support his family, and his mother, Sarah, Milton's mother, Sarah, who we know nothing about. Milton is educated from a young age, like as young as three. He's starting to be taught um, Greek, and in school, as a very young boy, he's being taught Greek and Latin. He knows by the end of his life Hebrew, Armenian, Spanish, Italian, uh, I think he knew some Dutch, obviously French, like he was very well educated in languages. But I bet he couldn't do one plus one. He could, he was also good at maths. I, I mean there's science. He can't be lost. good at all these he's things. He's good at all the things, yeah. He but he's like, the, he's probably the only person in the world who could have actually written this poem. Well, because he knows all that stuff. He knows all the stuff. He was incredibly well educated. At 16, he attended Cambridge, which again, I feel very inferior, <laughs> where his father wished for him to be trained as a minister. And as I said, by this point, he was a, last, a master of languages. And the one I left out was Saraic. Milton graduates with his master's and returned to live with his parents for three years in what he calls studious retirement, where he dedicated himself to becoming a poet. And this is normally the point in the lecture where I get the most laughs. <laughs> so everyone's like, Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> I was about to say me too. <laughs> yeah. um, Milton eventually convinces his father to sponsor his grand tour, which is like a thing that all 
uh, or rich young educated men would do where they would just sort of go around Europe the same way we do now with the Kentucky tours less alcohol involved though <laughs> so Milton's uh, Milton spent a year on this tour he was mostly in Italy he made friends with all the Catholics it's some very hilarious stories it does seem also that he's a bit of um, an, an Italophile like someone uh -huh. who I don't, maybe he I loves don't. the Italians. Yeah, I don't he know does. what that word is. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Also, it was a, a great place for him to learn about theology and get to know all the stuff about Dante, and he could have these great debates with different people. Influent Italian, because Influent he Italian. And he could swap between Italian and Latin. It was very cool. He also is believed to have met Galileo on that tour, um, who was under house arrest at the time, and he features twice. In Paradise Lost. After his return to England, and it should be noted he had to return because the Civil War was going to erupt. <laughs> With his father's help, he set up a household. He marries Mary Powell, the daughter of a prominent royalist family, which turns out to be a problem because one day she just runs away. She just leaves. She goes home to visit her sister and she doesn't come back for a long time. And it begs a lot of questions, but we don't have time. He was probably just bad at small talk. Small talk. <laughs> anyway, Milton was a strong supporter of the English Civil War and he made a name for himself most prominently before he was even recognised as a poet. As a pamphleteer, as a politician, his publication of uh, political pamphlets was incredibly influential on the wars and public thought around the wars. And after the execution of Charles I, uh, Milton became one of Oliver Cromwell's Latin secretaries. And he is in charge of justifying the fact that they cut off the king's head to the rest of the world. And this is an incredibly important job because all of the monarchs over in Europe are like, Oh my god! <laughs> and also, equally well, why don't we invade England right now while they're at their weakest? So Milton had to make them seem strong and impressive despite everything that's and justify what they'd done. That's a tough gig. It was a, he did alright. We'll talk about that more. So again, 17th century England, a bit more context. Colonialism, well underway, alright? New goods and riches, knowledge being brought back from every corner of the earth. The rise of the printing press had resulted in a wider distribution of information. Literacy is starting to improve, and despite their efforts to maintain control, the Anglican Church and the Western Christian world were facing a huge challenge to their ineffability, which was the rise of what now we call science. Ah. <laughs> Shakespeare dies 1616, the trial of Galileo is 1633, the Royal Society of London is first established in 1660, so again science is becoming more central. Um, you've got the Thirty Years' War happening in Europe, the Great Fire of London, which along with the plague contributed to the postponement of the publication of Paradise Lost. And what year was that in? 1666. Coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love the fact that, you know, fire then plague, and when you consider 2020 for Australia, uh, fire then plague. But it goes fire, plague, poem, so... That's the bit we're missing. Poem. Could you write a great poem, please? Despite these advancements, there was a continuing cultural crisis occurring between the court, the church, and popular heretical culture. Are we part of popular heretical culture? Probably. Right <laughs> Essentially, what I'm trying to say is England in the 1600s was a hot mess. It's a bubbling pot. They didn't know how it was going to explode, um, but it does eventually. The English Revolution took place between 1642 and 1651. The war was fought between the parliamentarians and the royalists in objection largely to Charles I's abuse of power. The parliamentarians, led by Oliver Cromwell, won the war and beheaded Charles in 1649 before installing Cromwell himself as Lord Protector. That's the head. That's Charles the sound. Going, yeah. um, Eddie Izzard, who is one of my favourite comedians, does this great bit where he's like, Ah oh, yes, the divine right of kings. They kind of prove that wrong when they cut off, cut off Charlie One's head. They're like, 
you know, if it was the divine right, in, instead of the head coming off, you'd try and hit it, it'd be like, ba-dong, ba-dong, and the door so it would keep bouncing off. Even then, nothing came out of the head when it mm. fell down. No dust, no smoke. The world went smoke. on, which is probably, again, why the monarchs in Europe were freaking out. What is important, though, is obviously that the revolution ultimately failed because Charles II returned from exile and took power in uh, 1660 in what is now known as the restoration of the monarchy and afterwards you can imagine what happened to the parliamentarian so-called traitors boot to the arm dug up Cromwell's body and paraded it through the streets and then hung drew and quartered it or what was left uh-huh. of it yeah because he was dead his son was in charge by yeah. that point and obviously they went after a lot of the other um yeah treasonous rebels and Milton was keeping a very low profile. He did go to prison very briefly, but largely because of friends in high places. And Andrew Marvell, among others, uh, he didn't die. So it's a minor miracle that A, the plague didn't get him. He wasn't burnt down, or his house wasn't burnt down the fire. I wonder if he kept copies. Don't know. It came with it came within, I think, like something like five Ks or less than. It was much closer, actually. You know, all of these things could have happened and they didn't. So, a couple of other things that are important about Milton. Again, he justified chopping off king's heads to the rest of the world, but he also had problems with his vision, and this features quite a bit in Paradise Lost, and it was something that he struggled with quite a lot as a man, because he thought God was punishing him. And there are these letters of him writing to doctors and doctors and also sort of priests and trying to get some understanding of, of what's going on and why because he suddenly feels small and impotent and subject to God in a way he hadn't previously and he therefore by the time he's writing Paradise Lost is completely blind and he dictates the poem which the more you understand Paradise Lost the more you read it the more impressive that becomes because how do you not do that with a th- without a thousand sticky notes and a whiteboard and yeah like, it's like, can you read me that part back again so yeah. I can edit it? Like, he I have enough trouble editing my work. He can't even read back what he's written to himself. No. He has to have someone else read it back to Exactly. Him. He has to probably remember the lines yeah. by... Apparently he would think of them in nighttime, at the nighttime, and then someone would rock up first thing in the morning and he would dictate to them immediately. It also says that he couldn't write during summer. He only wrote poetry during winter. He wasn't inspired. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in summer he writes a lot of his political pamphlets and things and works on Dead Octrina Christiana. This is for the summer, but poetry is... For the winter. <laughs> I mean, uh, Milton's also doing a lot of other things. He wrote grammar books, he wrote histories, and he wrote some, as we say, very important prose works. The ready and easy way to establish a free commonwealth is A, an excellent read, and B, argues for the development of a free government rather than kinship. Also giving you good tips and hints for developing your own commonwealth. <laughs> Which we're doing, aren't we? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the a lot of the arguments um, feature in Satan's argument. Milton also writes a doctrine and discipline of divorce where he argues for divorce. Can't imagine why. Uh, he had some trouble. <laughs> but he also does it in a way that isn't entirely not sexist, uh, but is very interesting sort of from a feminist so perspective. A lot... him the bare minimum stuff? No, no, no. A lot of people like to come down on Milton very hard as a sexist in the same way they come down on Spencer. But his portrayal of women is actually quite complex for someone of his age. So while a feminist reading is interesting, I think for the most part it actually obscures a lot of the discussion on women. Of Education is one of my fa- favourites. It's this tractate of educational reform. And he's like, these things, these things 
things will make people educated and we can talk. Areopagitica, he opposed licensing and censorship, so he's writing in favour of spe free speech. Again, very volatile time, very ballsy move. Tenure of kings and magistrates argues that the people have the right to execute a guilty sovereign. And then Iconoclastes, which justifies the execution of King Charles V. And then, because this guy, this douche, called Claudius Salmasius, published what was called the Royal Defence on behalf of King Charles I, in which he argued the revolutionaries were guilty of regicide for beheading Charles, Parliament asks Milton to develop a propagandist response. And he's like, I am up to this challenge. So he writes, Defensio pro populo anglicano, which is just the, the first defence of the, uh, defence of the English people. And then he writes another one because he and Salmasius, never sure how to say that name, get caught in this battle. And I would read you some of the excerpts, but it this we'll do them in the outtakes, maybe. <laughs> we'll do them at the end. Um, do they just slander each other? Yeah, it just becomes full-on slander. Like, your mom jokes, oh, though. Yeah, you're a stinky old man. No, you're a stinky old but man. But very smart. Do they call each other stinky old men in Latin? Essentially. <laughs> De Doctrina Christiana, which is uh, Milton's Christian doctrine, his big, big philosophical theological work, is not published in his lifetime. It's published in 1823. We're not sure that he finished it. That's like almost 200 years later. Yeah. That's a long time time to be sitting in a desk. In terms of Milton's poetic career, it was something he developed over the course of his life. At that time you didn't just wake up and go, I'm gonna be a poet. You had to you had to educate yourself, you had to practice, you had to practice certain types of writing poetry, and you had to sort of do it in a certain order. So, you know, Milton writes the pastoral poem Lycidas, and this is sort of his first ever great work, and then he works his way through all the way up to his epic poem, and then he writes a few other epics. Well, one other epic. And uh, the interesting precedent to Paradise Lost is Comus, or a mask presented at Ludlow Castle in 1634. And there's a lot of sort of contextual stuff around this, but while it is unlikely that Milton had a preconceived idea of Satan when he was completing his apprenticeship as a poet, there is a lot of evidence in Comus that he was starting to sort of experiment with these ideas. And so in Comus, Comus is a black magician who appears as, quote, some harmless villager and uses, quote, dear wit and gay rhetoric to convince innocent passers-by in the woods to drink from his cup and turn into lustful beasts. I would pay someone. I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a nice time. <laughs> I've got some in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> ah, margarita. Comus offers, quote, to every weary traveller his orient liquor in a crystal glass, for most do taste through fond intemperate thirst. He is the son of Bacchus and Circe, and he, so he is a master of deception and purveyor of lust. Also an alcoholic. <laughs> also an alcoholic. Who is um, also likely, we think, to have been influenced by Shakespeare's Prospero from The Tempest, and also Spencer and Edmund Spencer's Archimago, because he himself has a tongue as smooth as glass, and he lures travellers back to his hermitage and casts spells on them. So the audience has a clear understanding of Comus and his intentions from the beginning, beginning of the mask, and what you see throughout the play is the lady who Comus has caught, and him sort of having this debate, but she easily withstands a lot of these arguments he makes in favour of hedonism. So what I think is going on is that in Comus, Milton is experimenting with the depraved rhetoric, and although Comus is not as impressive or inspiring as Satan, he's probably a bit more similar to Belial, whose words are clothed in reason's garb. Um, Satan's method of argument, by force or fraud weaning to prosper, and his self-styling as an, as an orator renowned in Athens or Free Rome, where eloquence flourished has its origins in Comus. Comus also makes self-refuting claims, for example, we are, we are that of pure fire, 
imitate that starry choir, um, a claim supporting the power of the individual, which anticipates Satan's own individualistic arguments, and um, Comus's arguments are libertine in nature, and he uses persuasive rhetoric, arguing to the lady, what hath night to do with sleep? Tis only daylight that makes us sin. <laughs> Again, anticipating Satan's rhetorical seduction of Eve. Like, I think he's experimenting here. Thoughts? Have you read Comus? I have not read Comus. Would no. you say it's the most important of Milton's works besides From Paradise Ooh, Lost? Ooh, that's a big... Come on, then. To me it is. Mm. To me it is. In the context of what I'm doing. studying Satan. Lycidas is probably the best poem written in the English language. It's pretty close to perfect. I haven't read it. You should read it. You mean, like, mathematically perfect? Rhythmically perfect? In all ways, yeah. It's very balanced. The illusions are very carefully put together. It's very careful, purposeful, beautiful poetry. Is it very big? It's not very big. Oh, thank God. Yeah, um, and it's all because one of the people he went to school with died and people were invited to write sort of memorial <laughs> um, things uh, and this is what Milton produced for it. Yeah, so if you die, I'll write you a nice poem. No. Oh, another important one actually is Samson Agonistes, which is the story of Samson and Delilah. Oh, that's the only Bible story I know. What's the story of Samson and Delilah, yeah, right? I know, I know this because my mum once watched a film. I love that. It was like a rip-off of the film, and so, like, Delilah obviously had her breasts out. Samson <laughs> was, like, real muscular. That's I haven't seen thing. the film, but, you know. So I think the story goes, there's Samson, and he's real buff, and there's Delilah, who is woman. Um, They fall in love for some reason, and then he ends up, like, holding up a building, <laughs> and then he's blind, and then they die. <laughs> Samson's power comes from his hair. Yeah, I forgot that part. <laughs> and he tells her this in a moment of weakness, and so she cuts off his hair. I don't see the moral. I don't see anything. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong um, with being a man with powerful hair, and um, I don't see anything. the Samson Agonistes is published alongside Paradise Regained, which you'd think would be equally as epic. Uh, is Paradise Lost, but it's not. Uh, Milton plays by the rules here. Satan is a very stock character. He's just the tempter of Christ. He's not interesting. He doesn't have interesting arguments. Chicken stock. Yeah. Not even stock. good for the soul. No. This is bad for the soul. <laughs> bad broth. Chunky. I did see a lecture once that recognised that Satan was tempting Christ with the exact same things that Milton himself wanted throughout his life and was going after. But yeah, the representation of the devil just pfft, nothing. Yeah. In terms of Paradise Lost, though, Milton was incredibly anxious about it throughout his entire career. He knew he needed or wanted slash needed to write an epic if he was going to die in peace, I guess. And <laughs> I need to finish this thesis. I need to publish. Then, I'll be rattling in my coffin. Yeah. It's <laughs> just haunting my supervisor. <laughs> yeah. Milton uh, initially planned an Arthurian epic um, in the tradition of Edmund Spencer, who is described as a better teacher than Scotus or Aquinas for Milton. Um, and he was incredibly influenced probably by um, Milton, Dante, Shakespeare. These are the big names. So from late 1639 to mid 1641 or thereabouts, he made seven pages of notes in what is now the Trinity Manuscript, listing nearly 100 titles for possible literary projects drawn from the Bible and British history, several with one or two sentences of elaboration and a few with more extended plot summaries. That is very... It's Milton. He was, he was organised. I aspire to be as organised as Milton. I feel like a lot of people, like a lot of writers do stuff like that though. 
or like pitch fake titles and try and figure out which ones work. But usually they don't. Paradise Lost is very good. Like it's a very good title. It's it is beautiful. Really good. Good anime. So among these notes is the title Paradise Lost with a list of characters beneath. We don't really know him when we started it. Biographers will often say something like, you know, during this time, he perhaps started working on, or he may have been working on, or he must have been working on, but they don't know. We might have had a full draft as early as 1665. Like, that's... What we do know is he dictated it in the winter months, as we said, and that he eventually published it in 1667. But remember, obviously, this is after the restoration of the monarchy. So this is Milton poking his head back out into the world and saying, I made a thing. Please don't chop my head off. And it was a time of very rigorous censorship in Milton, um, particularly compared to the relative freedom of the protectorate, particularly, again, when you remember that Milton was writing in favour of free speech once upon a time. He sold his epic to the printer Samuel Simmons for £5, with the understanding that Simmons would owe Milton £5 pounds for the first three printed editions but Milton died after two and the legal contract Milton signed with Simmons according to Lewalski was the first such formal contract between author and publisher on record and shows Milton exercising an author's right to his intellectual property at a time when copyright was granted only to stationers through entry in the stationers register so this is very cool and unprecedented good on him <laughs> Because I, I thought, like, um, intellectual property law only came into effect in, like, the 1800s yeah. in, in England. Well, there was a thing called a state, the Stationers Register, which we don't have time to talk about today. But essentially it was kind of like shares. Like, you would buy in and own shares of, of different contracts, um, and you had to register books to be... Anyway, yeah, we don't have time to talk about it. <laughs> the first edition of Paradise Lost, published in ten books, possibly to distinguish himself from Virgil's 12-book structure and use the ten-book structure of Tasso. Uh, in the second edition, um, which was published in 1674, Milton added an extra two books, the last two books of the poem, as well as the arguments at the beginning of each book, plus a note on the verse where he justifies his use of blank verse and defends it against the reception from the first edition. What is significant here is that Milton was the first, wrote the first ever English epic in blank verse. Everything else was rhymed. Um, Spencer was rhymed. Over the next three years, the first edition appeared with six different title pages and was distributed to as many as six different booksellers. And we think this was a strategy by Milton to make it as widely available as possible. He was trying to promote sales and sort of limit risk. And it's funny because when he published this, John Dryden's famous essay on dramatic poetry was published at the same time in 1667, which argued, among other things, that rhyme was normal <laughs> and necessary in poetry. John Dryden was the poet laureate, so he was thought to know what he was talking about. He was against probably one of the best epics of all time. Well, he wasn't against it. He liked it, as we'll talk about in a second. But um, he, he published at the same time, so he hadn't read it when he was writing this essay. But then Milton was like, oh, by the way. <laughs> so it's just interesting that they sort of present these two different views on what poetry should be, and they probably are the two biggest poets of their day. So, so you can sort of see Milton, Milton Satan is a product of his time. Revolt, rebellion, discord, strife, product of Milton's life, thinking about uh, him thinking about language, heroism, <laughs> religion, purpose, how to justify the ways of God to man. But I think the context often helps us understand what scholars like to talk about as Mil Milton's purpose, which we'll never know, but it helps us get a little closer. Um, so what can you tell me about the reception of Paradise Lost? Lots. <laughs> 
All right, so initially people were more interested in just the poetry, really. People were more interested in talking about the poetry, the effect of the blank verse, Milton's theology. Even people who didn't like Milton because of his politics or his prose works liked Paradise Lost. Notably, John Beale says that Milton's plea for our original right is, he thinks, one of the great faults of Paradise Lost and the long blasphemies of the devil he finds disturbing. Yeah, contemporary reception, people were impressed. <laughs> Continue to be, don't they? <laughs> Uh, people came to visit Milton to ask him questions about it and to pick his brain, but it wasn't really uh, until John Dryden wrote his dedication to the 1697 translation of the Aeneid that he suggests that Satan is the true hero of Paradise Lost because he says he succeeds in his plan. That's his, that's his logic, whereas Adam didn't. He says if Adam had succeeded, Adam would be the hero. That sounds like he's using um, the logic of epic poetry. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Specifically. as someone who just translated an epic poem, <laughs> yeah. that makes sense. But it does, he's not recognising that much of the poem is kind of undermining traditional <laughs> epic poetry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, and Dryden was a smart guy, so maybe he did, but he writes this in the dedication to an eight. Another notable early critic is Joseph Addison, who writes a series of essays for The Spectator, and he he is the one who sort of starts. He's the one who is first talking about Satan's sublimity, which he does not think is evidence of his heroism, but rather something that should be expected and is, quote, suitable to a, to a created being of the most exalted and most depraved nature. So he's linking the dark ideas of the sublime and the idea that he appears impressive, but he's not. Samuel Johnson supported Addison's 1712 remarks and reasons that there is in Satan's speeches the that can give pain to a pious ear, which I love. He's saying he's a slippery motherfucker. Well, he's saying if, if you're pious enough, the slippery mm. mofo won't get through, and most people uh, fail. So we'll come back to that idea. Johnson suggests that saying sublimity is a stylistic choice, as the language of rebellion cannot be the same as that of obedience. So people are already sort of recognising the I, the problem of Satan's heroism and trying to reconcile it, understand it, justify it, explain it, and as we already see, we've got a number of results. William Blake, he writes the famous one. Oh boy. Well, is he? <laughs> I'm just trying to escape him. <laughs> I, I like physically roll my eyes every time I come across this quote at this point. <laughs> hmm? No, I was just thinking they chose a bad name podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's frustrating because people Oh, so I'll tell you what he says and then we'll talk about yeah. it. So he says, and he says this in a footnote in a section from The Marriage of Heaven of Hell, which he wrote between 1790 and 1793, called The Voice of the Devil. So he writes that the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet of the devil's party without knowing it. What does that mean to you? It sounds like, I mean, if I think about how it kind of alludes to the sublime, it sounds like... And Blake is saying that Milton wrote better. <laughs> he wrote better when he was talking. Is he trying to? Is yeah. he trying to justify the way that like? Mil when Milton writes about Satan, Satan appears like way better than mm -hmm. when he writes about God. Because so he has to fetter himself. Yeah. Like he has to chain himself when writing of God and angels because there's a right way of doing it mm. and he can only go so far. And this is something that, well, even the way he does do it, Byron chastises him for and says he shouldn't have done it and it doesn't work for him and that's why I've not done it in Cain. That's why he leaves God out as an actual actor in Cain. Jehovah is there, mm. but he doesn't do anything. He's not an actor in the poem. Byron is 
is one to talk about morals. <laughs> we'll get to that in a couple of episodes. Whereas with the devils, there's, there's no rules. He could do whatever he wanted. So he kind of, he let loose, essentially. <laughs> do you think that people misinterpret the of the devil's party yes. phrase? How? <laughs> Let's get into this. In this section, the narrator is um, talking about how desire is associated with the devil and, with, and restraint with the messiah. And the history of their relationship has been adopted by both parties, i.e. both parties try to tell the history of their battle and is explained that in the book of Job the history the history is told by the party of restraint but the narrator who is the voice of the devil goes on to claim that Milton's version must be of the devil's party because he does not restrain himself instead presenting the devils and Hal and his own history as the one to uh, one opposite to the one provided in Job. The note provided by the voice of the devil claims that because of the unrestrained representation of Hal Milton must be an unconscious supporter of Satanism. But we've got to remember that this is the devil talking and it's very convenient for him to say that. <laughs> the note is not based on significant analysis of Paradise Lost. It is the voice of the devil's attempt to rationalise the flattering idea that Milton was one of his followers. So it was a catchphrase that got way out of hand. It got way out of hand. Well, I think it's... It gets right to the heart of the problem, which is like, why does Milton represent the devil in such an interesting way? And he suggests that it's because Milton supported the devil without knowing it. He was subconsciously in league with the devil. Um, and a lot of people like to apply a revisionist history reading to Paradise Lost and argue that Milton, whether consciously or subconsciously, because he was a parliamentarian reformer or revolutionary, that he was telling the story of Cromwell's revolt against tyranny. But actually, it's quite the, it's the other way around. So yeah, it keeps being misused. This is everyone tries to say that this is the first acknowledgement of Satan as the hero and Milton did it on purpose and it opens up just this big... The romantics fall into. The which all the romantics <laughs> fall into. Now in my thesis I argue that the romantic readings and representations of Satan are incredibly nuanced and represent their own reflective, very careful reading of Paradise Lost and discussions and thinking about it. But broadly speaking the romantics do start to recognise the heroic qualities of of Satan, if not his heroism. In 1820, Percy Shelley called Satan the hero of Paradise Lost explicitly, comparing Satan to Aeschylus's Prometheus, and Shelley explains that both Prometheus and Satan personify traits of, quote, courage, majesty, and firm and patient opposition to omnipotent force. Shelley further argues that in Satan, these traits are diminished because of the, quote, taints of ambition, envy, revenge, and a and desire for personal aggrandizement, which Prometheus's benevolence shelters him from. So again, Shelley, I think, has the most shrewd observation. Because of the similar traits that um, Prometheus and Satan have, we see Satan as impressive. Because he lacks that benevolence, he becomes complicated. Whereas Prometheus always has that justification. Satan starts off with kind of a justification and it just slowly fades away. Finds the downward spiral. Yeah. Byron talks about the devil. <laughs> Does he ever stop? And we'll look at that in detail when we get to Byron. <laughs> Byron with a forceful B. <laughs> Pain in my ass. <laughs> just lean out of my I want to bring him back from the dead to clobber him with a candelabra. <laughs> Be more clear in your diary entries <laughs> and stop contradicting yourself. I'm tired and want to go to bed. I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons why you want to clob a Byron over the head with a camera. That's the main one. I'm sick of writing footnotes one. about his inconsistencies. Most of, uh, like, what? spring last year was just spent with me going, yes, but which version of Faustus influenced you, Byron? Uh, I'm tired. 
that destroyed the steering. It's very annoying. So you can't figure for the out scholars. what yeah. plagiarizing. I'm bringing him back and I'm smacking him <laughs> in the lip. So <laughs> Why is that person beating a corpse? How <laughs> <laughs> did you get into London? He's writing a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to break at some point. Blake, Blake says this. Um, Byron is writing and developing characters influenced by Satan who repeat a lot of his ideas. The Shelleys are doing the same thing. Frankenstein is incredibly influenced by Paradise Lost. I mean, the creature reads Paradise Lost itself and it informs his understanding of the world and the way he understands himself and Frankenstein and their relationship. So big deal amongst the, particularly the second generation of romantics like Satan. Um, the first generation were more interested in Milton and the poetry. Could you give me a couple of names from the first and second generation? Uh, all right. So first generation is uh, Sammy Taylor Coleridge, William Wordsworth, William Blake. Those are sort of the biggest ones really. And, and they're all talking and dealing with Milton. Uh, uh, Coleridge talks about it. What's Coleridge talk about? Coleridge talks about Satan in a couple of his lectures and sort of acknowledges his heroic aspects. Wordsworth, uh, do you know about Bloom's anxiety of influence? It's psychoanalytical, so, but he essentially argues that a lot of the Romantic poets struggled because they were sort of the first generation of poets who were the most aware, collectively, of the poets who had come before them and were sort of struggling to get out from under their influence. Ah, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Like, um, Byron is obsessed with Pope and trying to get out from under him. Wordsworth is obsessed with Milton, and Wordsworth is the one who writes the prelude, which is the big romantic epic, and he's, like, trying not to be like Milton, but also trying to be Milton. And also Wordsworth was just a bit of a prat. Um, <laughs> I wish I had that confidence to align myself with a super famous poet and be like, I must work all of my life to be better than them yeah. instead of just not as about the same. So he kind of, like, avoided talking about him. Oh, yeah, and he got in a fight with Hazlitt about it at one point. Like anyway. <laughs> no, it was there in a boat and they were having an argument. Oh, I'm sure there was a fist fight involved. Come on. Mm, no, what's worth this is a tall, skinny dude. I just want them to have fist fought. Yeah. Boat. Anyway, so those are sort of the first generation. Second generation is um, Keats, the Shelleys, Byron, Hazlitt. And Robert Southey, who was of the first generation, sells out to the progressive cause, <laughs> becomes a conservative it? in the preface to the Vision of Judgment, and he calls them the Satanic School of Poetry. Ah. Right. So we we thought about calling ourselves the Satanic School. Didn't it? Didn't have a great ring to it. We thought about the Voice of the Devil. Again, not a great ring to it. So we finally the settled on advocate. of the Devil's Party because we are of the Devil's Party, but we know it. I'm just going to whoever's you know prettiest, got the best ideas. That's why you're in my study, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. So you know these are often termed uh, romantic misreadings because uh, again. Altogether, it sort of reads as if Satan is perceived as the hero of Paradise Lost. And this becomes a problem because we hit the modern critical reception and things explode. Does, it, does this mean that, like, we've never, humanity has never been as interested in nope. Milton Satan as we are Patrick now. has a theory about that. That's really cool. I'll tell you later. That means it might ebb one day and forget about it and then someone will pick up your when thesis. When I die. Yeah. You know, no, like hundreds of years after and they'll pick up your thesis and be like, oh yeah, this is the, and then they'll have a word for the epoch we're in now. And <laughs> the, be, mess. <laughs> the mess. This is one scholar from mess that had this theory and then they'll be holding that and then they'll be looking across at their like human ape 
like robot robot hybrids and be like, how does this apply to our, you know, yeah. okay. Alright, so we start to get more modern critical receptions. And that's interesting. So Dennis Swara, I'm gonna say, completely disregards any nuanced views of Satan, suggesting the poem is a transposition of Milton's private and political experience of the struggle for liberty in the Christian moral, intellectual and political spheres of Milton's life. Sure, if you only read half the poem. <laughs> yeah. But again, he goes with Blake's idea of like this this was Milton struggling. This is a psychoanalytical kind of reading. Which, if you know anything about Milton, the man was organised. He knew what he was... If he went and published something, he knew what was in it. He had read it a thousand times, not with his eyes. He had heard it. And his memory must have been crystal clear. He knew. Like, this wasn't an accident. Similarly, E.M.W. Tilliard accounts for the parallels between Milton's life and his poem by suggesting that Paradise Lost has both a conscious and unconscious meaning. So again, the idea that there's something going on below the surface Milton doesn't know about. Tilliard ultimately argues that at least unconsciously, Milton allied himself with Satan, who best, ex- quote, best expresses the heroic energy of Milton's mind and is, quote, representative of the heroic energy Milton injects into his other examples of prose and verse set free. All of this sound kind of like Blake's fault. Why does everyone <laughs> have a preoccupation with being unconsciously aligned with the yeah. devil? The devil well, it's a good it. way of explaining it away, I guess. Like, it was unconscious. He didn't mean to. It just yeah. happened. It's like the devil's everywhere. Is it because they can't, like, have, because they can't explain how someone who was obviously religious could depict the devil in such a nice way? Is that crux of it? I think, yes, that's part of it. And because God is represented so, not badly. <laughs> you did call him a douchebag He is represented as a douchebag, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think because Satan is so appealing to us. It's very hard to try and wrap your head around why a, a, such a pious man like Milton would do that. That does make sense. He did take basically the world's worst poison and make us all want to take a bite. Everyone wants to lick it. I yeah. want to. All right. Um, <laughs> so, but this, there's a turning point. It starts with Charles Williams, but... We're going to really start with C.S. Lewis, who wrote Narnia, but also was an awesome scholar. He's an Anglican Christian, pretty hardcore about it. He was also a formalist uh, in literary terms. He was traditional and he believed in the conventional reading. And Lewis says there is one right way of reading Paradise Lost. And if you don't read it that way, you're an idiot. (laughs) He says, Satan is the progenitor of evil, a disgusting voyeur, and an incredibly self-obsessed monomaniac with a long list of neurotic flaws. For Lewis, Satan is interesting not as a character or because of any of his characteristics, but simply because he is Satan. That's why we like him. He is interesting. Yeah. So that's his point. Yeah, got it. He's the And then he goes through and he's like, but he's all of these bad things, guys. He's everything that is bad. (laughs) Um, And it's hard not to agree with him, but then you get really frustrated because he doesn't account or even acknowledge how how awesome he is. He just says he's interesting. It doesn't then unpack that. Why? Is that because Lewis is speaking from a very religious... Yes, I think also Lewis reads it in a very formal way where he immediately goes, oh, yeah, that's delusion. Oh, yeah, that's just pride in the sinful sense. Whereas we, contemporary readers in particular, will read it and go, oh, that's some beautiful poetry. (laughs) Whereas he's like, nope, 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 Satan speaking, not okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
blacks out a couple. Yeah, of probably. <laughs> uh, and this kicks off the Milton controversy, bec- which becomes this debate over what Milton's intentions were. So Alma Edgar Stoll writes, "Give the devil his due," where again he sort of defends the devil. Uh, William Empson famously takes an atheist approach, and he says that Milton puts God on trial. He defends the devil. He says he's a good politician and interesting rhetorician. Um, but as an atheist, you can sort of see how these um, worldviews start butting up against each other in their interpretation of the poem. And then you get Christopher Ricks uh, come along, writes a book called Milton's Grand Style, where he sort of, he's like, everyone sit down! <laughs> and he really analyses the poetry, and he thinks about the meaning of the poetry, and how the poetry works, and tries to come back to the text rather than this debate over perspectives of the text. But still, this poem remains, this, this problem remains for some time. Uh, it's not until the 60s that the supposed answer comes along. And it comes along in the form of Stanley Fish. Fish pops out of the fish. water and there it is. Um, now, Fish is an excellent academic. I've read literally all of his books. I see him all the time in uh, your, your honours thesis, maybe? My yeah. yeah, he's everywhere. But he is he's most famous for developing reader reception theory, and he does it largely through a book called Surprised by Sin, which is all about Paradise Lost. And he apparently solved the problem, because he argues that poem is Milton's attempts to educate us. He says it is primarily a didactic kind of text. He, he says that Milton sets us up to fall, and by falling we are then chastised by the narrator or Milton's voice to be better. So he gives us these wonderful passages by the devil where we're like, oh, pretty. And then we're like, oh no, it was the devil. And we sort of learn to be more suspicious. He argues that the meaning of the poem is subsequently reduced to the reader's exposure to and experience of doctrine, reproof, correction, and, re- and instruction. And he suggests that the fit reader will regard the difficulty of the poem as a compliment to his own powers. Yeah, what's that face? Oh, I was just thinking that's very 60s. Yes. <laughs> and look, it's it, it appeared like the apparent answer. Like, everyone went with it for a while because it made sense. It was like, yeah, that's why we all like him. It's set up to be likeable and then we're meant to learn from it. That makes sense. Reader reception theory makes sense. But I'm not satisfied with this. And many weren't. And the reason I'm not satisfied with it is, again, it doesn't account for Milton's complexity, the complexity of uh, his narrator, who is actually more of an unreliable narrator, who is prodding you constantly and provoking you to think rather than setting you up to fall, I, I argue. And and I'm not alone. So some other scholars uh, before me <laughs> come along and start uh, trying to develop a, a different understanding. Chief among them is Barbara Lewolski, again, my favourite scholar on the topic and she examines Milton's combination of various character types and epics and she suggests that Satan is an exaggerated version of the idolatry Milton has long associated with the Stuart ideology of divine kingship. He's the tyrant, he's the bad guy, but because Milton uses all of these classical conventions which are very recognisable to us, which we're used to reading, which we're used to associating with actual heroes, it becomes a bit confusing. <laughs> that seems like a really logical approach to It's a very logical <laughs> approach, she's my favourite. Um, another one that uh, John Steadman does this as well, and Milton's epic characters. My favourite though, John Romerick comes out and he says Fisher's approach is reductive of Milton's voice, which I agree. He s- rejects the view that Milton is a knuckle-wrapping, peremptory prig. <laughs> humiliates and berates his charges for their errors and requires conformity to his authoritative understanding. 
Now, I have no doubt that Milton liked to be right in arguments <laughs> with everyone. <laughs> I would not want to argue with him. I know. <laughs> 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 he knew, yeah. But I don't think this is how he thought, I mean, from reading of education, this is not how he thinks people should learn, by, like, berating them and then making them go again and then berating them when they get it wrong. He was all about reflection. And I think the poem sets us up for reflection more than it does just beating us with a stick. You have uh, some other sort of modern scholars, Regina Schwartz, Stella Rabard, Joseph Rittrich. Um, the other one I haven't really talked about is Christopher Hill, who is an excellent historian. Uh, he argues, though, that par although Paradise Lost is a poem, not a historical document, it should not be taken out of history. So he sees the historical events as incredibly influential on it, um, and is a good place to start if you're interested in the context, but um, revisionist history only gets us so far. <laughs> the modern landscape is still that we don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, no, you know. I know. This is the no argument. one is listening we to me yet, this. though. <laughs> yeah, we need this sort of confidence. <laughs> I know. I know. I solved it, guys. Yeah, Come listen. Yeah. But there was someone before me, a little bit. So Neil Forsyth, again, one of my favourite scholars, he writes the Satanic Epic and also um, the Old Enemy. And in these two books, he looks at everything about Satan that came before Milton, and he analyses how Milton uses all of these ideas. So what I'm trying to do is go go from there. So if all of these ideas are suddenly joining together in Paradise Lost and combining into one idea, where does that one idea then take us? So Milton is kind of, or Paradise Lost, Satan in Paradise Lost is kind of turning point. Um, so everything comes together in here and then it starts to spread out again. And for the readers who, the listeners who don't have a camera into this room, Alice is making like a, uh, what are those sand things called? Well, it becomes denotative, it goes down to a point and denotative. it becomes connotative and opens back up. You know, yeah. but what's the shape that you're making it? Hourglass. An hourglass. And Satan there it's is the, middle. the little waist of the hourglass. In the middle, yeah. Uh, Forsyth recognises Paradise Lost as a work of impressive consilience. So bringing together of all of these ideas of existing satanic traditions and he considers it to be a satanic epic. This is his answer. That makes me he came up with this excited, the uh, phrase satanic epic. Right, but it was after, I found this, I read Forsyth early on in my research and it was all over my head and then I came back to him a couple of times after and, after and every time I come back to him, I'm like, yeah, but I came up with the idea of the satanic hero before I fully understood what he was on about, so I was like, yeah, and then I was like, oh, this guy can examine my thesis, I should reach out to him, we should hang out, he's dead. Ah, <laughs> no. But for a while I thought he was alive because he's still on old faculty pages. So oh, like, no. where is his email? He's <laughs> like, oh, no. gone, he's dead. An apprentice somewhere. <laughs> Hunt them down. Well, Peter Cochrane, who's the big Byron scholar in this area, also dead. Peter Thorslev, who we're about to talk about, also dead. Forsyth also says that although the poem is about the origin of evil, both in heaven and on earth, the medium through which the representation of evil is worked out is primarily Satan. So he's saying that Satan is the central part of the poem and I think this is something that people were trying to deny for so long. Like, no, he can't be, he can't be, he's Satan, he's Satan, but he can be. He can be and he can still be Satan, he can still be the bad guy. It's just Milton experimenting with how epics work. <laughs> like, Christ is the good guy, he's just less interesting. It's a and we learn yeah. less. Hmm? Well, I was thinking about how sometimes you see people suggesting things like, oh, we should do a superhero movie, but do it from the perspective of, like, one henchman on the <laughs> side. It seems like Milton did That'd something like that, and people are denying the fact that the story's about the henchman. They're like, it's still Thor. <laughs> yeah, it's still Thor, but we spent all the time with the palace guard. Or, or with the lesser-known Hemsworth, <laughs> brother. <laughs> the big one, though, 
Well, perhaps not the big one. The set's from... The important one for yeah. us is, is, forthcoming. <laughs> is Peter Thorslev's book, The Byronic Hero. Because um, even uh, although Forsyth is, is after Thorslev and Forsyth is thinking about satanic history and everything, it is Thorslev who is thinking about heroic art- archetypes and prototypes. And he does this because he's trying to talk about the Byronic hero and he's trying to understand where the Byronic hero comes from. And he says essentially Byron just mashes up a bunch of existing hero types. And in doing so, he creates again kind of an amalgamation that is recognizable to other writers. So really, Byron's heroes themselves aren't always. Byronic heroes, they're just mashups. The ones that come after Byron take on those ideas and bring them together in Byron's unique way again and again and again, and they become Byronic. But in this book, he's talking about these different hero types that came together in Byron. So there's like Cain and the Wandering Jew and Child of Nature, Metaphysical Rebels, etc., etc. And then there's a chapter on Satan and Prometheus, but it's a very short chapter. Barely half of it is given to Satan. He doesn't really talk about anything other than the impressiveness of his speeches. And then he goes to Prometheus and says essentially what Shelley says. He's benevolent. But he does acknowledge that those two do come hand in hand. And that sort of brings us up to today. (laughs) And me, who argues, again, that there is such a thing as a satanic hero, which Milton established by bringing together all of those existing hero types in a certain way, the same way Byron does, and which became influential after him. But the reality is we're caught at kind of an impasse in Milton studies. I've been trying for a couple of years now to write this article that refutes fish, which is, again, yeah, I'm ambitious. (laughs) But I'm I'm, uh, analysing the way the narrator is used as a provocative force, rather than this um, didactic, berating, angry, schoolmasterly figure. That is how we are um, able to learn. So instead of being like a schoolmaster with a stick, you're kind of like a museum guide. Yeah. It's over here, and then it's over here. Feel free to use that. And you recognise it because you realise that the narrator is being unreliable. He says something and you're like, oh, that doesn't gel. That doesn't make sense. So the museum guide just like points to a bin. He's like, see, modern art. And that makes you think. Yeah. And you look around it, you know, is that Mona Lisa? Yeah. (laughs) Pretty sure that's a Titian. Thanks for being part of our devil's party. Next time, we begin our analysis of the poem in earnest and examine how, based on our discussion today, Milton characterises the first modern dark hero. So in our next episode, we'll examine the first two books of Paradise Lost and Satan's role in them. After that, we'll look at books four and nine and various other books along the way, but those will be the main ones. In the meantime, happy reading. So, uh... <laughs> I love the devil's party. Whoa, what are you trying to say? <laughs> a domesticated dark hero.